Hi guys and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for this week's episode is a very young man who I came across on a Patreon-only episode of Friend of the Pod, Jake Hammerhand's Popular Front podcast. Anton Brimble is the founder of The Modern Insurgent, which is a grassroots independent media organisation which specialises solely on insurgencies, rebellions and political movements from around the globe. Their objective is to remain impartial and enable their readers to better understand the relationships and dynamics between the world's political struggles. Anton set up the project in the summer of 2022 and he is still a university student in international relations and politics. The spark for Anton starting The Modern Insurgent came from his involvement in videoing an actual terrorist attack as it happened outside his home in Vienna in Austria in November 2020. From that moment, Anton was interviewed by media outlets for his eyewitness account and he has since started the platform where his fellow students and others write for it. In this episode, we discuss the professional and mental health impact of that terrorist attack on him and how it shaped his life, how he's worked to be taken seriously in the industry and the competitive nature of conflict journalism. For Anton's mental health, we discuss his French-Serbian upbringing and the values that his parents' mixed heritage had on him, how he lost some of his friends after starting the modern insurgent and an inner anti-fragility and perspective he's had since he was a child and how it's helped him manage his mental health then and now. So this is how my check-in with Anton Brimble went. Anton Brimble, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you very much for coming on and letting me check in with you. After I heard your Patreon-only episode with Jake from Popular Front, friend of the pod, I sent you an email straight away because I really wanted to have you on and give your platform some exposure on mine. I've interviewed so many of guests, of Jake's guests now, I should say. It's becoming a bit of a habit, to be honest. How are you, mate? How was your Christmas? Oh, I'm very good. Thank you. Happy holidays. And thank you for having me on this. Yeah, I saw your email. I was really happy. I was more than happy. Um, and actually, I did hear about your project even beforehand. Oh, uh, sick. Up on my Instagram. Yeah. So I don't know if you know, there's some other channels anyway, but yeah, they talked about you. So when I when I got your email, I was more than happy. Wait, so, someone's been talking about me behind my back. I don't know about this. What's going on? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> not in a bad way, but people, uh, people like your content, man. People like your oh, content. Oh, sick. Okay. Well, that's not a sponsored ad, by the way. I didn't ask you to say that and I, I don't have money to put out sponsored ads. So that's clearly something organic. So there we go. Your age has made me feel simultaneously a bit old, even though I'm 28, and also a little bit of imposter syndrome because of how much you've done with the platform we're going to speak about, mate, considering that I started Vent when I was 23. You're already far ahead of me, but uh, I won't dwell on that too much. And and it's, it's only a positive thing. So without further ado, mate, are you ready to start the show? For sure. Let's start your pod by talking about your professional journey, mate, as you aren't a conflict journalist just yet, although I'm sure you have aspirations to be that in the future. So tell the listeners how and why you became inspired to get into conflict reporting, how your baby, this platform, The Modern Insurgent, started, and the journey to where you're up to today. 
Yeah, sure. So, I mean, as you mentioned, my age earlier, I turned 19, let's say, less than a month ago. God. So I'm very young to the whole scene. Not a conflict reporter just yet, but obviously trying to get there eventually. So my overall motivations, they're not very fresh. I've been interested in, in this sort of career path for a while now. So I was born in a very, like, let's say, political scenario sometimes. <laughs> it's a bit weird to describe myself like this, but I'm kind of the product of the Yugoslav wars because my dad was a UN peacekeeper. My mom was a translator for the UN, and they met in Kosovo during the war. So, yeah, you know, if it wasn't for that war, I wouldn't have been born. So I guess, you know, I always grew up in a very political scene. My parents mm -hmm. were working in the field of politics, stuff like that. I was always involved in these conversations. So I knew I was going to do something relating to the field of politics, whether it was, you know, relating with an IGO, being a politician. <laughs> I feel I feel ashamed to say that, but yeah, whether it was to be a politician. <laughs> uh, Your parents are peacekeepers, bro. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I should have learned. I should have learned. But yeah, or, or conflict reporting. The truth is, so I lived in Vienna between 2019 and 2021. And in 2020, there was a terrorist attack, which unfolded like right under my window. And so, you know, we'll get, I'm sure we'll elaborate on that in the, like just mm -hmm. later on. But really, that was sort of the thing in my life that made me certain that I wanted to take the latter option. So to become a journalist, because I always knew I wanted to fight terrorism, especially as someone from Paris, you know, it's always mm. been hitting my, you know, like where I come from. So I wanted to fight that in a way. I had a phase where I wanted to become, you know, a soldier, part of the military to mm -hmm. go and fight that myself. But the truth is I wanted to go to university. My grades were, you know, very good. So yeah, I was, I was dissuaded from that option. And instead I thought, well, okay, what's another way to fight it? And I thought that it was just through truth, trying to spread truth, trying to spread information about it. And people often think, oh, well, it's, you know, tough to give so much information about, especially, you know, terrorist groups because mm -hmm. media, already, the media already does it all the time. But one of the things I found was, and one of the things that sort of upsets me when I watch the news is there's always this big focus on the big picture, which is great. Evidently, we need that sort of coverage. But sometimes we forget why groups exist in the first place. And so that's why I started The Modern Insurgent, is to try and create a database of political struggles around the world. Initially, it started off just by focusing on terrorist groups, but now we sort of focus on a wider scope of uh, just political struggles in general. Some of them are more genuine political parties, protest organizations, other of them are just straight out terrorist groups and the idea that we have is to try and give them a unique approach to you know to coverage to reporting mm -hmm. instead of just giving the big picture basic facts stuff like that mm. we have a team now uh, of 33 writers and we do like a very thorough research for every single group we do academic research and we basically produce scholarly essays on every single group that we can find so yeah that's how i got the motivations for the modern series mm. amazing bro and like you said, your interest in diving into the world came from a your university degree, but also from you being literally in the midst of a terrorist attack in Vienna. So like you said, we are going to discuss the mental health impact of it later in the pod. But I just want to talk about the event itself and perhaps from a professional perspective, because it is obviously a life defining event for you. And many people in your position, when there is a terrorist with an AK-47 shooting outside their window, would probably stay away from the window and stay out of sight. You, however, decided to get your phone out and film what was happening. Maybe that's a Gen Z thing, to be, to be honest, more than anything else. What was going through your head when you made that decision? Did you almost feel in that moment like a journalistic spark was coming out of you to capture it? I wouldn't go as far as to say it was like the inner journalist in me who came out, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit but, of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, but <laughs> some some untold prophecy. Yeah. No, the truth is, it, it's a very like casual context, but I was I was playing on the PlayStation with some of my friends and we were playing a shooter game and I heard these shots coming from outside and I was telling my friends, like, I hear shots and they were telling me, well, obviously, <laughs> we're in a game. These headphones you know? are really immersive. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
but the, then I knew he was coming from outside straight away. So actually, I still had the headset on and I looked outside the window and he obviously he was right there. So I grabbed my phone, sort of in, in a mix of reaction at first because there was no one else next to it. Everybody mm-hmm. else was just running away. So I thought, well, how, you know, there's not going to be any information about this. So I started grabbing my phone, filming, you know, a lot of stuff. But also, I guess, maybe, you know, looking back at it, it might have also been from what I learned from the, the Paris attacks and mm. also from just other terrorist attacks that have unfolded. The fact that most of the best information we have is primary accounts. So when you look back at these terrorist attacks, especially the ones in Paris with the Bataclan shooting, the only way we know what happened inside was, you know, people who grabbed their phone and filmed. So I didn't film it in a way of like, oh, I can get, you know, like free clout from the media for doing this. No, no, no. I, I didn't even share at first. At first, I was just, you know, filming it just for my own sake in order to get some information. And so, yeah, then the next day, my dad and I turn on the French TV and there's this like very famous French reporter literally standing right in front of my house. So we go down and we're like, hey, we're more than willing to tell you what happened. We saw everything and I have some videos too. So, yeah. That's how mm. it all started. And yeah, obviously, you know, it's yeah, like you said, it was well-defining for, for what I wanted to do as well. But in the moment, it wasn't really, you know, something that was going to define my future. It was just sure. something pretty shocking that happened. You made some phone calls to your friends who were playing with you at the time and who were actually on their way to the square where the terrorists began firing and you stopped them from going there. So it's obviously quite a hypothetical thing to think about. But have you ever thought about what would have happened if you hadn't, like, do you think you, maybe this is perhaps a bit of a big question, but do you think you might have saved their lives? Well, saving their life is always tough to tell. And I don't yeah. want to, you know, like pretend that I'm responsible for some of my friends being alive. But it was mostly like cooperation. So while I was, obviously, I still had the headset on, right? And while it's happening, I'm telling my friends, guys, this isn't a joke. Like, this is genuinely happening. Mm. So they grabbed their phones. I grabbed mine. And we were telling basically every single like school group chat that we were in guys, this is not a joke. There's an active shooter like in the first district of Vienna. Please don't come here. And the first district is like the nightlife where the nightlife is at. So everybody was going to come here. And actually we had some people from the grade below messaging me and my friends saying, guys, we were literally in the tramway two stops away and we got off early. So I'm not sure as you know, what the real consequences of that are, but it's definitely good, you know, that we saw it and directly acted upon it. It wasn't, you know, keeping it to ourselves in a way, but we did want to, to help out people. Like you said, you went down and spoke to that French reporter and you also were interviewed on several other media outlets because of yep. the footage that you had. Given you were still a teenager in high school, A, did it feel quite surreal at that moment? And what was the reaction when you actually went back to school? Did you almost feel like a bit of a local celeb? <laughs> well, in a way, actually, because, right, so I got interviewed by the French media and then I saw there was basically every media outlet there because, you know, it's like yep. exactly where it happened. And so I also spoke to Danish news in German for some reason. I'm not sure how the linguistics work out, but that's just <laughs> what language they chose to interview me in. I also spoke to Sky News. I talked to ABC News in the US. And there was another one. I forget. Anyway, I talked to these five news outlets. And I remember, actually, I got an email like an hour after one of my interviews. And it was one one of my teachers who was watching the Sky News. And he was like, hi, Antoine, great interview. <laughs> and so I, was, <laughs> so I was kind of looking at this email, you know, in great interview isn't necessarily the email I was expecting (laughs) (laughs) but well I didn't feel like a celebrity but I I I mean I did save those clips you know like me talking in the media because it was my first time on tv but Mm. also just because actually in a way I was kind of happy with the way the interviews turned out because the way they like introduced my segment let's say on the sky news was saying stoicism still like exists here because my response was pretty stoic in a way like People often ask me, like, especially the American media, for some reason, they kept asking me, are you going to move out of Vienna after this? 
and I was kind of you know like shocked hearing that, especially from an American media where it like a lot of these like shooting attempts happen in the U.S. And so I don't know. I felt like I actually it's, felt it's like a traumatized a place, of... America, mate. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot I of actually, traumatized I people. Felt, I actually felt like a lot of the interviews were tr- almost trying to like. Well, like put you in a trauma me, state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also trying to make me give answers that like reflect fear. Like they're trying to push towards those topics. And so every time I was telling them, like, you know, like we'll get through this. People are resilient. It's it's an attack. But like if if we if we're scared of it, then the terrorists have achieved their goal. And I was saying that I was saying the only way we can defeat them is by continuing with our normal lives. You know? You're born in Austria, right? Uh, no, I was born in Paris. But You're I born in Paris. Austria. Okay, yeah. so French and Austrian attitudes. You've kind of got that in well, abundance then like well, <laughs> just gonna get yeah, on with in it in the stoicism so i don't think they quite understand that in america <laughs> <laughs> let's fast forward two years to the summer of 2022 so this was when yep. you decided to start modern insurgent so you kind of explained it a little bit already but how did the events actually lead to the conception of the idea and then what issues do you cover on the platform and what would my listeners be interested in through a mental health lens as well Sure. I mean, as I talked about a bit earlier, basically, I always knew I wanted to do something in that field. And after the attacks, that sort of obviously materialized my passion. I started studying international relations and politics. So I started to get to know a lot more, especially when it comes to the theories behind it. So I thought, okay, well, when I look at the media, I've had this problem for a while. And just as I mentioned, they always try and install fear in a way. Mm. And when they talk about terrorism, there's this big taboo. So they'll always, for example, talk about the Islamic State. And you can feel there's a sort of almost like a resentment behind it which is good obviously we shouldn't be glorifying these groups but there's a sort of feeling that tarnishes in a way the way we report about these groups and we always tentativeness maybe is that what you yeah exactly i think i think that's a good way of describing it so i thought you know okay okay well i'm gonna start this own little thing first i started as as an instagram page where i'll just be posting about movements that barely anyone knows about Mm -hmm. about terrorist groups so it started off with terrorists and then it just evolved into protest organizations political movements all of that but the idea was really to provide this unique lens in reporting obviously at my scale right i started off on instagram page i was only 18 years old when i started i couldn't just go into the field and (laughs) make documentaries but it's a good start just get your press badge straight away like as a kid yeah yeah, yeah. that'd be a little bit hopefully hopefully that's in the plans for (laughs) for sooner than later but yeah when i started obviously that's the way i did it it started off with very basic instagram posts and people liked it a lot it started blowing up popular front helped us tons they they reposted our stuff got a bunch of followers i'm really thankful for jake He's, he's been offering a lot of opportunities to me so yeah, we got a large following. So now we have a whole team working on it. We have a website. Our posts are like better layout, stuff like that. So now we're definitely like working on better content. But yeah, the attack is what I'd say. Like it's the event that I would pinpoint in what led to the creation of the modern insurgent. Amazing. And you spoke there about your age. And when it comes to sort of issues in the industry you wanted to talk about, you started this platform very young. And because of that, you initially wanted to keep your identity a secret out of a worry that you wouldn't be taken seriously. So was that fear internalized within you or was it unfortunately justified in any way when you actually unveiled yourself as the face of this platform? No, for sure. I mean, I wanted to stay anonymous because I wasn't very new to the industry because before I started making content, I was following it. I was Mm -hmm. seeing it like every day. I was always interested in, you know, like these type of pages on Instagram or these type of documentary stuff like that. And everybody that creates that content isn't as young as me. And sometimes I was, well, at first I was afraid that people would question the legitimacy and like mm. the reliability of my content. If I'm, you know, just an 18 year old writing content, it's like, what do I know about yeah. it? You had to back um, it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also the second one is sort of, and I'm not too sure how to explain this, but for example, people sometimes 
you know, they write like Fed or they think everything is a psyop. They think everything is, you know, like a Fed is responsible for this content. It's like, oh, it's uh, them. They're trying to bait us, stuff like knock. that. Yeah, just... yeah, exactly. So if, if the thing is, if I release my identity and I have like 30 followers and I'm just like an 18 year old talking about these things, it probably wouldn't have done as well as it has. So at first I thought also, okay, well, it's also irrelevant who I am. You know, I was just releasing mm-hmm. good content. What really mattered to me was, wasn't like, the benefits towards me, but the benefits towards the community as a whole by revolutionizing this sort of, well, not revolutionizing, but, you know, providing this unique approach to reporting. And so, yeah, I released my identity. Well, when we released the website, you can just check out our, you know, our team. So I guess that, but also when I did the interview with Aiden Aslin, which I did a month ago, which is like a huge achievement of mine. And so, yeah, then I had my face in it. So some people also, you know, said, oh, wow, you're so young, stuff like that. But it hasn't like negatively affected it now. So I, I guess now that I've proved that our content is, you know, unbiased and high quality. Mm-hmm. I think people don't really care that much about my age. Oh, 100% agree. I think it's the initial reaction and it's just yeah. how you take it. And if you're secure in yourself, which you, you definitely seem to be, at least from speaking to you for the last 20 or so minutes, are you able to brush it off when you do sense a bit of patronization? Do you have that inner self-confidence to kind of take it in the best way now and say actually it's people kind of praising me that you're doing it so young and you've got now all this the great thing is for me as well to see is that you've got all this potential to grow and who knows what the limit is for you in the future no for sure and actually like after my podcast with with jake my first one for the for the bonus episode we talked about north korean uh, people's liberation front he invited me to the to their discord server and there was a bunch of people talking like about me let's say about (laughs) about the podcast so I enter the Discord and I see a bunch of people talking about the NKPLF. So I scroll up and they're like, wow, I can't believe he's only 18 years old. That's brilliant, stuff like that. Mm. So we actually, you know, got a lot of, let's say, well, not praise, but, you know, some good feedback from it. You like, just yes. respond saying, it's me, bitch. I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I introduced myself. I said, hey, guys, I didn't mean to, like, read past messages, but I saw you were talking about me. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's very heartwarming, like, to see all the nice messages. And people were nice. They were liking. They were. But, yeah, in a way, I guess it actually kind of helped. Like, looking back, it kind of helped the whole motivation of my Modern Insurgent project. Because I was trying to, let's say, like offer a unique approach towards reporting. So the fact that I'm young sort of helps that, you know, it's like a new set of values. I don't want to sound like like a boomer, but, you know, like our (laughs) new generation does have sort of different like approaches Mm. to different things. So I guess maybe it was refreshing for for older members of the audience. Yeah. Do you feel like, and there's a bit of a discourse at the moment around Gen Z in the fact that Obviously, you. I say this all the time that Gen Z as a generation have kind of been fucked up by social media in lots of ways. And perhaps they are more sensitive or there's lots of general stereotypes, right? Do you feel like you are an example of how you can sort of push back against these negative stereotypes and actually say, no, there's a whole section of us which are open to inquiry. We've got new ideas, fresh ideas, and we're not this stereotype that we're portrayed by some in the media who want to portray us as that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now I'm not gonna go as far as to say I'm like a role model for my generation. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how I'm that. Not try and, I'm not. I wasn't trying to trap you with that question, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> no. So basically, I'm a god. No, yeah. but like the the idea the idea is a lot of us. Let's say like a lot of people from my generation are very very sensitive. So for example, so when I told people on my story on my Instagram story that there's a terrorist attack happening under mm. my window, there's this person from my grade who said people are really sensitive. Don't put these things on your story. See, and that was me trying to push back against the stereotype, and you've just <laughs> you've just said that kind of justified. Yeah, but I mean, there we go. I mean, really, like this stereotype does exist. A lot of people are yeah. sensitive, and like I was kind of shocked reading that message, so I didn't even respond to it. But it's like thinking that you're so sensitive that other people don't deserve to know that information that could potentially save them. 
months. Like, you, know? you went through it, bro. Not there. Like, like not there. Like, you were the one because... in it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the worst part. That's the worst part. And this person <laughs> was saying things like, "Oh, like it's. I don't want to imagine these scenarios." And I'm like, "I lived through it." Like, if I'm. <laughs> but yeah, no, that stereotype definitely does exist. But in a way, I think, like what you said. Well, the modern insurgent is one of many different projects that I've seen that sort of mm. show that many of people from my generation aren't so sensitive. Mm. Um, you know, we grew up in this sort of like TikTok area. I think that's the best way to describe yep. it. Everything's one to two minutes. Everything's very short. Everything's with music. Everything's friendly. And people get a lot, a lot more sensitive. And you can see it on social media too. I mean, our content has been suppressed just because it mentions a group. So we've had posts deleted just because they literally mention a group, nothing else, just because they mm. mention a terrorist group, which is absurd. But people get very offended very easily these days. So I think in a way, many of us do have that determination to sort of fight that, whether it's through projects like mine or whether it's through people becoming more stoic by themselves. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. You've just naturally moved us on to the next topic, which is social media. And you've covered, I guess, already the pros and cons of social media in relation to how you promote the modern insurgent. But one thing you also began to experience when you started the platform, as well as your writers who wrote for it or write for it, was social media abuse. So how has this manifested and how has it impacted your mental health and the writers that write for you? Were you also surprised when you started receiving it a little bit? The truth is most of the hate we got was just political hate. Which oh, is, really? Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I welcome it actually because it fosters debate. And actually we have this whole story that says, usually pages say we're not political, but our slogan is we're 100% political. So we hope all of our content, like all of our comments, stuff like that, have some debate. And we've had during like this month, we've posted some, you know, debates in our stories and people have interacted. And actually, we're one of the rare like pages where you check the comments and people are fighting, but in a sort of respectful manner. <laughs> That's so rare, I'm, mate. That's rare. I'm actually, yeah, I'm actually really pleased with that. You know, I'm, I'm happy with that there's this sort of political engagement. Obviously, it always ends up with insults because, well, that's just how it is. But at least there's the buildup. So that's good to see. But yeah, I'm not entirely sure if the abuse qualifies as abuse, but I've definitely had some people like in my personal life, like sort of question the whole project, you know? Mm. So I think it was after three or four months when we had like 3.5 thousand followers and we had our website, we had the first set of writers that joined us. I decided to just post about it on LinkedIn. And I was like, let me tell you guys about a project I've been working on. And I mean, it looked good, you know, all of a sudden in, in three or four months, I had developed this huge community, this huge project, which, which was really good for, you know, me professionally. And I remember a lot of friends like messaging me like, Antoine, what is this? Like, are you crazy? Why are you posting this type of content? Like, I don't think some people understand it. And actually some of my friends probably see it as like me just like being obsessed with terrorism, which really comes off like very wrong, obviously, because that's not <laughs> the objective. But yeah, I guess in, in a sort of way, the abuse has been indirect. Like people sometimes at school, they come up to me they're like, oh, the modern insurgent. Like the point, <laughs> the point of me is not to be represented as an insurgent, but that's sort <laughs> of sometimes how it's come off, unfortunately. Another element you wanted to discuss, mate, is the hyper competitive nature of the industry. So how yeah. have you marked TMI as a platform to rise above that? And just tell the listeners how all of these accounts or some of the accounts you've seen end up fighting against each other for clout when it comes to content oh for sure so actually like one of the main reasons as to why we put so much effort in every single one of our posts we post like once once or twice a day and like it's once every two or three days sometimes it's because we really want to be original because of that like competitiveness so before before we joined i realized like when there's an event that happens or a piece of news even on the media it doesn't have to be like other instagram pages but everybody talks about the same thing mm -hmm. and they always try and use the most sensational language as possible 
to try and stand out from the rest. And so I saw that the way other news, let's say news agencies, whether they're small or large, try to stand out wasn't by improving the quality of their content, but by improving the quantity. They were just posting a bunch of news, sometimes things that weren't that important. Well, everything's important, but I guess if you know what I mean, they were just posting basically anything and always using a lot of caps, a lot of sensational language. And then you'd end up scrolling down on your Instagram and you'd see the same thing like 10 times. And so in that sense, it's been super competitive. You know, I've seen pages like get in fights with each other about like who posted it first and i'm like this is very very like this i'm 19 like, years old and i felt like that was childish yeah, right this so, is like this is like mean girls in high school sort of chat exactly exactly know? so it was yeah in that sense it was hyper competitive which is why we tried to stand out and i guess part of our success is that it's that refreshing people also get to see things that are less to do with you know actual events and so yeah and mm. obviously everything's like very high quality stuff like that before we reflect on this journey, you obviously mentioned that you got the shout out from Jake. He's come on your, you've come on his podcast, sorry, I should say, and talked about the modern surgeon and all the topics that you discussed in that episode. Do you think there's, and I don't want to big up Jake too much because I feel like big him up enough on this podcast, but do you feel like there's enough people in the sphere like Jake to support guys like you who are coming up? Do you feel like there's that support and mentorship or do you feel like it's Again, like we said previously, a bit more doggy dog. Well, I'm still on the fence about it. I mean, definitely Jake is leading it 100%. Mm. He's, once again, I don't want to praise him an insane amount, but the praise is really like deserved. I mean, so he used Popular Front obviously to sort of revolutionize, I can use the term revolutionize for him, grassroots modern yes. conflict reporting. It's definitely like something that hasn't been done before. It has a lot of benefits too, but really using that platform as well to bring up other like similar projects. And one of them was mine. I remember sitting in my room at 3 a.m. in Vienna, like literally five days after I created the modern insurgent, we had like four posts. It was a useless account. And I tagged him because I met, I, I was talking about one of his documentaries, the one in Corsica. And he liked the story like 30 seconds later. And I was like, there's no way. And I was so happy with the like, I screenshotted it, sent it to my <laughs> friends. And then I see mentioned in their story, mentioned in their story like five times. He had dedicated like half a story to telling people about the project. And in one night with four posts, we had 400 followers, which nice. was something that was like really, really crazy. So... In my opinion, there's never enough people like him because they can mm. only help, especially with like what we talked about, the level of competition. There's way too many people. Well, competition is good, but there's a lot of people who are so competitive that becomes detrimental to, to the sort of like image that we have in the industry. Mm. And I mean, I think most of people listening will agree. For example, when we talk about like different pages or stuff, or when I was talking about the comments under my posts, everything is so aggressive. It doesn't matter whether it's like pages between each other, but there's all people are always so competitive and like hostile towards like content, mm. stuff like that. And well, Popular Front really like helps with that. You know, they're refreshing. They're not that hostile. They really help projects rise up from their roots. So yeah, definitely. There needs to be more people that are like Jake for sure. When you were getting into this field then, were there any people from afar that you perhaps looked to for inspiration? So like war correspondents, you know, from the top of my head, someone like Jeremy Bowen from the BBC, who's been doing it for 20, 30 years or someone like, I think James Morehouse, who's reporting in Ukraine right now, or any female correspondents as well. Was there anyone that you perhaps, you know, couldn't get in contact with like Jake, but you looked at as inspiration, like if I'm going to do the modern insurgent, or I'm going to do something related to it, I want to take some, some things from them and, and hopefully make it better. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And actually, that's that's why I was super thankful to, to work with Jake, because me and my roommates would <laughs> like twice a week, we'd sit in our living room and watch one of the popular front documentaries. And we'd always joke about it. Like, guys, imagine like we would just go and film a documentary with them. And five months later, I'm found like filming podcasts with Jake. And we're actually <laughs> working on some pretty other cool stuff at the moment. So like, 
it's not like let's say a dream come true but it's close to that you know it's pretty surreal but obviously the end goal is to become a conflict journalist personally professionally mm-hmm. whether it's with the modern insurgent or not i really want to start filming documentaries and i think 2023 hopefully will be the first year for that but yeah there was definitely a lot of other reporters like Hanif hassan from vice she's like one of the best for sure especially with like the latest documentary she's done in lebanon and stuff like that like all of that is really inspiring and it's exactly what i want to do I want to be able to go to these dangerous areas and shed light on things that are really underreported because we always hear the same things and we often like forget what it's like for people there, you know. So, How do you plan on doing that? How do you want to go about doing that? So, for example, how do you want to develop your interview skills? How do you want to develop building your contacts? How do you want to develop, you know, those interpersonal relationships that you need to be a conflict journalist? Have you thought about like a plan or have you, have you thought about what you want to kind of expose yourself to to build that skill set? For sure, for sure. So my answer is going to be pretty long, so I apologize in advance. Okay, but no, I think, no worries. I think, yeah, it's, a lo- it's, on, it's a long question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I, think it's, I think it's useful. So in a way, I think the interviews that I've done so far, so they're all online, they're all over Zoom. They're not the most interesting. They're valuable like resources for people trying to do research, which I guess aligns with what we do so far. But when it comes to actual, like let's say I'm chilling on YouTube at like 3 a.m., I wouldn't just randomly click on the interview, you know, because it's an online interview over zoom so i guess it has its limitations but the eventual idea is to keep building up this network and this database to a point that allows me to sort of get a journalist pass get an actual like qualification for it and then be able to go out into the field now obviously i'm a a student so it's gonna be like really hard to balance the time but for example my university allows for six months of an internship next year so i would try and use that it could be with the modern insurgent it could be with something else but to find time with a news agency to become an intern to actually go on the field and try and shadow a program or something like that but also through contacts so whether it's in university but also through the modern insurgent because the amount of contacts that i got from from this project are huge try and just you know build up and develop connections to get an opportunity eventually get a cool story i'm gonna have to cite popular front again but it's like for example when they filmed their 3d gun video yes like the one with jay stark that's the one that has the most views that's the one that sort of branded popular front Mm We're trying to look for our version of that. So I'm hoping that 2023 will offer an opportunity for me to film or it doesn't, well, I hope it's a documentary, but it might be something else. Have our own content that takes that role, that takes that role of like break, like the breakthrough, the modern insurgent. So yeah, I'm hoping, obviously in terms of personally, you asked about the skills and like my Mm -hmm. abilities. I'm more than confident to do anything, but obviously I do have to improve a lot. There's always room for improvement. So I'd have to, you know, take courses, stuff like that, but also just learn from the best. So I've been watching, you know, a lot of documentaries for a while now, not just YouTube. You know, I've, I've watched pretty much every like significant documentary, like conflict wise on, on YouTube, stuff like that. So I know, I know what the content would look like, but when it comes to my personal skills, so being able to speak a language that the locals don't or stuff like that, there's definitely still a lot to overcome. And as a final question, before we reflect on your mental health, your mental health, before we reflect on your professional journey, without revealing your plans or making someone steal your idea, is there an issue or an area that you really want to cover through this work? Well, to be honest, in terms of like a specific topic or a specific area, we're not completely sure yet, but we do want to do something that's very like original like to find a political struggle that's like super unconventional and provide some light on something that's crazy so for example obviously i doubt this will be what we end up doing but for example there's this like really interesting group in france the only like registered terrorist group in france which is crazy it's the crab it's the regional the translation in english is the regional committee for vt cultural action and it's these winemakers who like blow stuff up and they like threaten. That's to so kill. French. Oh my yeah. days. They, they threaten. They threaten. Wine to kill. making terrorists. 
god. It's straight it's straight out of a movie, but like they threatened the the president. I don't remember if it was Hollande or, or Sarkozy, but they threatened to kill him. Their like motivations come from the fact that the EU hasn't allowed them to make a lot of profits because their wine is just too expensive. And so they just commit crimes. Like they they destroy things. They found this like truck containing like you know like a gasoline truck mm-hmm. and they just blew it up with the driver in it they just blew it up like they do a bunch of crazy stuff and it's this sort of like militant stuff that we're really interested in like things that nobody talks about but things that are like cool in an academic sense we're not trying to glorify like a cause and say like oh this is cool this is badass no mm. this is like the idea is really to shed light on obviously some things that people don't talk about and having these like cool movements per se would be pretty awesome for a first piece especially because it would get a lot of traction you're like like you said the terrorist winemakers i mean you know that's like that's a slogan straight out of a family guy episode or south park also we're not trying to do anything just for the sake of it we're not trying to film a documentary just to have the first one out we're generally like we want to do something huge and as a final question going on this journey for the time that you have anton i know you it might feel like you've been on it for a, a long time but obviously comparatively it's not too much time yet what has it taught you about yourself do you think honestly i'm always very very like confident in who i am I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the mental like health aspect, mm-hmm. but I'm somebody that believes that everyone has like a lot of talent in them, but we don't exert it because like we haven't, or well, this is going to sound like some spiritual guru stuff, but I promise it has like, <laughs> it has better intentions. But basically like most of us haven't like woken up inside of ourselves yet. I don't know if that makes sense, but like most of us wake up and go about our daily lives and nobody ever like stops to think, well, actually I can do it. Like I can do this thing that I've been thinking about. And so in a way, I was always confident in my abilities to do a project like this. But what it taught me about myself, I guess, was my managing skills. I didn't think I'd have that much drive to manage a team of 30 people and doing it pretty well. Like, obviously, I hold surveys. I talk I talk with my team a lot. I ask them to give me feedback, stuff like that. Like, the writers are really happy with, with the way things are going. And so I guess that's something I learned about myself, like sort of the fact that I can manage big teams. And not that's a pretty big skill one. to have as an 18-year-old, bro. I'm not going to lie. That's going to definitely help you yeah. in the job market. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, no, definitely. Like, it's it's something that I'm happy, you know, to have discovered, I guess. Hmm. But yeah, the managing skills is definitely a bigger one because having to mix that with everything else I do in my life, finding the time to talk to 30 people, basically on a daily basis, edit all of their articles, publish them, all while making your own content, stuff like that. It's a trouble, and we'll talk about it later in, like, the mental health section. But, yeah, that's the biggest skill I found, yeah. We've checked in about your professional journey, Anton. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So, I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Anton we meet here? Well, I guess... I'm going to use the sentence I used at the start. I'm sort of the product of like war in a way. Like obviously my parents met during a war then grew up in a very political mindset. And I think that was one of the biggest like things that contributed to my active like mental health is the fact that I was never excluded from any conversations. And usually I'd go to school and when I was very, very young and I'd know about very complex topics. I know about conflicts around the world. I would know about wars. I would know about these kind of things. Things that like the average five or six year old doesn't necessarily like know too much about. And I guess in a way that's thanks to my parents, you know, never excluding me from conversations, never hiding anything from the TV on me, from me, stuff like that. So I guess it prepared me in a way to be resilient when it comes to like hard hitting news, but also just for that mindset I have of wanting to know more, wanting to follow political ambitions, stuff like that. So I think in terms of early life, for sure, I think it's my parents like tailored me, if that makes sense, mm. in that mindset. Like you said, you're half French and you're half Serbian. Now, yep. France is a country known for a being good at football and now unfortunately rugby and b being known for protest 
quite a lot, yeah, <laughs> a lot of the time. And with Serbia, it used to form part of a group of countries known for a very big war, and also a group of countries which love a cigarette, as I, I can attest to when I went to Croatia. Everyone yeah. is literally smoking all the time. So how did those values from both your parents, not the stereotypical ones I've just mentioned, but how did those values that they instilled in you manifest in the way you've adjusted as an adult, the way you adjusted as a teenager and the man you are today, essentially? Yeah, I mean, my dual nationality has like influenced me to a huge extent. I mean, it's probably one of the main things that's influenced my mindset. So obviously you said, I wouldn't say it's unfortunate, but yeah, we are pretty good at football and rugby <laughs> in, in France, but also good at protesting, stuff like that. Yeah. But also when it comes to democracy, like, so although I was, I never like lived in Serbia for a long period of time. Like I go there two or three times a year because my whole family's here. Since I'm very young, you know, I've had that contrast of, well, Serbia's stable, but I, I can't I, like put a word on it. I guess in France, I have this hybrid of stability, democracy, you know, like a, a progressive mindset. Strong and national I, identity as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then I go to Serbia and they're very conservative. They still talk about obviously the Yugoslav wars, but the situation with Kosovo. And obviously my, some of my family lives on the outside of Belgrade, so not so stable, you know, stuff like that. So I've always had this duality and it's helped me appreciate obviously what we have in leading democracies of the world, but also it's helped me understand that there's a double perspective for everything. So I grew up in the French mindset because I, I went to school there that mm -hmm. like the West is always good. You know, the West is always progressive, stuff like that. And as I got older and I'd go to Serbia, I'd have political conversations with, with my family members, with my friends. And I'd realize like at first what might seem like, like a reach is actually like pretty justified in their minds. People that are anti-West, stuff like that, they have their reasons. And so I never grew up pro-West or anti-West. I always grew up in sort of the middle. And mm -hmm. I think that's why people always say there's bias in journalism. And I think, although that's true, there's definitely like ways to basically almost completely eliminate bias. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the main things that's helped me personally, not just with the modern insertion, but in general, you know, having this sort of neutral perspective on everything because I grew up with this complex, like I said, divide between pro-democracy and anti-West, stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know? So I've always been presented with a conflict of interest and especially when you have debates at home, you know, like my mom, my dad, whether it was in football as well, you know, but <laughs> in multiple things, it was always, you know, people arguing. And so that's always helped me with a very critical mindset, but also appreciate that although some things might seem out of pocket or they might seem like very far-fetched, a lot of the arguments have a lot of foundations. And so that's definitely helped me, you know. So yeah, French and Serbian, like also if I may, if I might just, if I might just add, it's also beneficial that it was like France and Serbia, because if it was like, let's say like France in, let's say France and England, it would have been like a dual nationality, but the values are very, very similar, yes. you know? Yeah. Whereas here I have like very two conflicting ideologies in both countries. So mm. the more I was exposed to both, the more I would like continue questioning both. So in that way, I'm really grateful for that. I know far too little about the former Yugoslav war. And even though I've read quite a bit on it, I still don't fully understand quite the amount of reasons and quite the background to it. However, obviously you are half Serbian. And even though I was born in the mid nineties, I have no recollection or memory of the former Yugoslav war. It's probably feels like an absolute eternity to you ago. But when you go back there, I imagine you still feel the consequences of it. You still can hear it in the people's voices. You know, you see it leak out, for example. I can't remember the year, but I remember when it was either the Euros or the World Cup when Switzerland played Serbia yep. and Granit Xhaka and Shakiri did the now famous bird symbol. I will just refer to it as that because I don't want to get myself in trouble. That was rumoured to be or alleged to have some nationalistic tendencies towards the uh, Serbian fans. So when you go back there, how do you see yourself 
in the country and how do you see the consequences of the war in, in playing out in the conversations that you have with family members or just the communities that you go to yeah well actually it, it's interesting because <laughs> when i come to serbia people see me as like the west sympathizer but then when i go <laughs> when i go back to like well spain where i live currently for university or france or stuff like that they, they see me as an anti-west person so it's, <laughs> you can't it's, win. Always, yeah. it's always the opposite but yeah actually like when i come here i see very interesting things you mentioned like the um the thing with the Jaka and Chachiri, it was in the World Cup, like they eliminated Serbia in the last yes. second and then yeah, they yeah. did like, you know, like a symbol connotated with yeah. Albanian history, Albanian nationalism. So a lot of people are angry. And when we played them again this year, they were hoping not only to win, but basically like really injure the players. <laughs> so I guess in a way that sort of transitions to what you were asking me about, like initially, like there is still a sentiment here, like a very strong sentiment that was influenced by the wars. And I see that like a lot, especially with the conflict in Russia at the moment. Obviously, a lot of the Serbs are, are pro-Russia. And I think a lot of people misunderstand it in the way they think that it's, it has to do with ideology. But most of it has to do with experience because like a lot of the NATO bombings that took place in Serbia were against civilians. You know, they just wiped out households. They wiped out hospitals. So a lot of people here have this hatred towards NATO for that reason because they've attacked Serbia for something that now they're defending Ukraine for almost in a way. Mm. Because what's happening in Donetsk and Luhansk is state-backed separatism and they view that to be like in Serbia they view that to be identical to Kosovo so people view that as like okay so the West destroyed us for it but now they're helping Ukraine for it and so they're still stuck in this mindset now whether it's true or not is obviously it's a very very long debate but they're stuck in this mindset that the only reason the West let's say intervened against Serbia was because it was against Russia and the same thing in Ukraine so they still believe that this cold war is still happening which has a lot of arguments that support it especially from an academic perspective a lot of the you know cold wars and proxy wars proxy wars sorry not the cold wars a lot of the proxy wars fought today have to do with this sort of power divide between Russia and and the US and the West stuff like that but yeah definitely there's still an anti-war sentiment here not only based on what happened with Kosovo but definitely with what happened in Bosnia and in mm. Croatia as well although I must admit things are getting a lot better like my generation doesn't seem to care that much about the like, 90s are a very long time away for you mate you're probably born in like 2004 so yeah i was born in 2003 yeah exactly yeah, yeah. here you go so, so the 90s probably I, wasn't, for a long I, wasn't, time. I wasn't born during the wars i was born during like serbia was called serbia and montenegro until 2006 mm. but then obviously they split up but those two nations are like on very good terms so mm. there was no war with that but um yeah, I'm mostly familiar with, obviously, what's happening in Kosovo because that's when I was born. But the Yugoslav Wars, there's definitely still a resentment for that. But among the new generation, I must admit, I suppose we care less than the older like mm. the older generation. Let's go back to that terrorist attack you experienced, Anton, because I want to talk about it through a mental health lens a little bit more. So you obviously mentioned the moment when it began. How did you initially feel? Did your body go into a fight or flight state or something completely different? I don't even know if it qualifies with fight or flight. I guess it was powerlessness, like hopelessness. Mm. I remember seeing him down that window and I was just like, okay, well, like, there's literally nothing I can do. And actually, I remember there was a bunch of people screaming and like, there was this one person who, I don't remember if they opened their window, but the window was probably open and they were insulting the terrorist. Like they were telling him like in German, they were telling him okay, a bunch of slurs that there's no need in saying, but I observed all of these different reactions. I remember people like sitting in bars because like for context, it was the last night before lockdown measures hit again. So a lot of people were outside to celebrate, like, you know, the last day before the lockdown. And so I remember just, like, hearing the shots, looking outside, and people just jumping and throwing, like, tables and throwing chairs and just running away. And I, in particular, I remember, I don't know why, I remember this one lady who was running away, and she tripped on her umbrella. And I think in panic, she just took off her shoe, which didn't make sense to me. But I remember seeing all of these things, and, like, it's weird what people do when they're, in, like, in this sort of scenario, like, fight or flight. 
nobody really fought, obviously, because it's an armed gunman, but everybody was fleeing. But um, in personally, like, I, I remember seeing all of this almost as if it was, like, not a movie, but, like, I guess in a way I can say, I can, I can use the term movie because I couldn't do anything to change the outcome. Like, I was just there observing a scene, like an atrocity. Did it feel like, like it was in slow motion in a way? Because you were observing all these different people quite quickly. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess sort of it, everything slowed down, it felt. And also, I remember the police said the whole attack lasted like 12 minutes, but I remember hearing shots for like an eternity. So I guess in that sense, for sure. And I remember even when the attacker went beyond my sight and my dad entered my room and stuff like that, my dad has like military experience. So as soon as he heard the shots, he just entered the room and he was like, who's firing the AK? He didn't even ask whether it was happening. He just knew. And so we're looking out the window. Obviously, he was telling me to back up, yelling at me for even like daring to look out the window. But I remember, yeah, like, from a mental health perspective, not only did it feel in slow-mo because of like how surreal everything felt, but also just the rumors afterwards. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about them after as well. But there was only one shooter and he was shooting for around 12 minutes. He fired so many magazines and people thought there were multiple shooters. And I was just there like, what, what can I do? Like it's under my house. And we saw like special, special forces arriving and everything just kind of unfolds. And you can just sit there shocked and just waiting it out. Were you frustrated by those fake rumors, fake news? I don't know. I don't, I'm not using the term fake news, but were you frustrated by that considering you were in the midst of it? How did you react to that when you saw it happening online? Did you kind of try and detach from it and say like, you know, if I keep responding, if I respond to these people, it's just going to escalate and it's going to put wasted energy. Or did you feel like, actually, no, I need to challenge these people and stop it. Yeah, well, actually, I did challenge a few people, like, in comments. I, I took to the keyboard warrior. <laughs> I started, like, telling people, like, this is not true. And I would, like, send, like, photos, like, on Twitter. Like, people saying there's, like, three or four. It's a lie. There's only one. But then the thing is, most of the rumors were saying they were in different parts of the city. So that myself, I couldn't verify. So actually, in the moment, it made me more scared than anything. So I was very frustrated with it afterwards when I learned there was rumors. I was frustrated because in the moment, nobody knew there were rumors. People were saying there was a suicide bomb in a hotel like in the second district, somebody said there was somebody who threw a grenade in the metro. So these things are like unverifiable when like I'm from like anybody's perspective, but they were just like there. And so we were thinking, wow, this is like, this is a huge attack. This is a coordinated attack. And also there was these videos of people filming themselves. Like I remember there was this one like fake video. I'm not sure if it was a deep fake. I really don't know what it was. I only saw like once or twice, but it was like this, like this bearded man who was saying he was part of the Islamic state. And he was talking to the camera and saying this attack in Vienna is only the beginning. And I guess that was sort of like this misinformation campaign. And it really frustrated me afterwards because I don't understand what the point of it is. Mm. I really don't. Because nobody even got like, you can't get clout from misinformation from a terrorist attack. That's not how it works. So I was like really frustrated afterwards. I'm like, these people have nothing better to do than just make this stuff up. And just so like... So there was almost like a psyop for someone who was trying to drum up more hate exactly, towards yeah. Muslims. That's yeah, exactly. Weird, oh, I guess in a way, it could be, it's like an Islamophobic. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Looking back at it for sure. But there was so much like hatred and so much misinformation spreading and I couldn't verify any of it. So I thought it was true at the start as well. And yeah, man, that, that just makes it even even scarier. You're a night owl by nature. Did it affect your sleep pattern? I guess in a way, yeah. And actually, I remember, <laughs> so I was the only one at like 4.30 a.m. with the lights <laughs> on in my room. And I remember there were like helicopters like going around the area, obviously, because it was like still the attack had just happened. And I was wondering whether the guys in the helicopter, were they wondering, <laughs> like, this was very childish to me, but I was like, what if they see the lights and they think there's another terrorist hiding in here? Because who has the lights on at 4 a.m.? And so, especially like right next to where it happened. But honestly, yeah, it was, it was pretty hard to sleep, obviously. And when I woke up, it almost felt like, well, it, not almost, it generally did feel like, like there was a huge tragedy. Like I woke up and for like the first time in my life, I didn't wake up and was like, oh, I want to spend more time in bed. No, like I was awake directly and I was like, this really happened last night there was generally somebody shooting 
live rounds at people in, in my street like yesterday. I want to move on to something that you've experienced as a result of doing The Modern Insurgent, which you found quite difficult, actually. It's the effect that it's had on your personal friendships. Now, for some reason, you lost quite a few friends because of starting The Modern Insurgent. So why did that happen? And how did it make you feel when they did cut you off? Well, the truth is, most of my friends that were like already very close to me didn't cut me off. Like, obviously, they understood oh, that's the good. project. Right. Yeah, yeah, they they understood me like completely. They supported my project, but I did have like some friends that were like borderline close, mm-hmm. and they started distancing because they thought it was like a very sus project in a way. They thought it was like, okay, why is somebody talking that much about terrorism stuff like that? And I remember, like, this project extends beyond like just like my my interest. It's also like academic interest. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. I studied this the whole time, and I had this one presentation. I coded a software that detected the amount of times a country was mentioned in the manifestos of terrorist groups. So I downloaded the manifestos of like 10 terrorist groups and like used that program I coded to essentially count like how many times they refer to other countries. And that was just like out of academic interest to see what countries were, were the most hated by these groups. So I had a bunch of like, I had like the ISIS manifesto, like Al-Qaeda manifesto. And people saw that and they were like, whoa, that's like, like really weird. Like, why is he downloading it? Like, we're in a class of international relations and people were like judging me for these interests which is a shame but you can't understand something if you don't read what they're doing exactly yeah and (laughs) but it didn't it didn't really affect me in any way because to be honest i was kind of grateful i was like well okay you know like if you're not going to help me even in a professional context (laughs) then there's no point i mean you didn't like my project then you don't participate in class and then also when i code this type of stuff or i you know you i found out who your friends were basically yeah. exactly yeah and yeah. i also i also found who else was interested in it i actually had the reverse happen as well while some people were distancing themselves some other people have never spoken to before were like hey man this is really cool like can we work on this together i guess it, it had this sort of like dual effect at the same time it was in the moment obviously it doesn't feel great you know like people telling you like you're a weirdo why do you care so yeah. much about terrorism especially when it, you're studying it it's like well yeah. it's my studies it happened with me with event as well man like I, i've interviewed certain people and because i've covered certain issues it's affected relationships not with my best mates just with people you thought maybe are good friends yeah. or something like that and you can sense the distancing or you can sense perhaps tension or tone in how they respond to you on certain things so it happens but like sure. you know as we've said you've built your own community i built mine how have you used this new community to make new friends and connections? Well, I think the most straightforward way I did it is through the team of writers. Mm-hmm. So when I opened applications, the first one, we got like 30 applications. And I just took like 16 writers who had the best motivations, best experiences, stuff like that. And then I reopened applications again like a month ago. And we had 90 applications, which was like a lot. And I could only take like 15 more. But our team is like full of really, really talented writers. But in a way, they're also very, like, very kind people. So what we do is I decided, I guess, sort of like the management skill I was talking about earlier. I wanted to combine this like good community that we have on Instagram where people are participate so much. People always share our things. People always comment. People always reach out and sort of combine them with our team of writers. And the only way I did that was the way we talk between writers is on Discord. And that Discord is public to our community. So when you join our Discord, there's a bunch of like people interacting, whether they're writers or not. And so I've used the community in order to basically develop like a think tank almost. If you go on our Discord, there's people always talking about politics, sharing resources, people asking for like help with projects that are related with, you know, politics, security studies. And so it, it's led to this nice like hybrid of writers talking to the community and vice versa. And it really f- makes people feel involved in our content production as well. So that when we post something, occasionally we're like, oh, this is what you were talking about in the Discord, mm. stuff like that. So it's nice. I decided to use the community 
and expand it and not just have it like as a number on Instagram, like a number of followers, but have it as a, like people that want to interact and help us with our, with our content production as well. Maybe you're speaking a long-term goal for the modern surgeon into existence there with a think tank, but maybe you won't yeah. be sponsored by very shady people like a lot of think tanks in the UK are. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully not. You mentioned Instagram there, and a big moment for you was being added to a group chat on Instagram of fellow grassroots conflict journalism or conflict content creators. Why was it a big moment for you? Was it a moment of validation, for example, in in your membership of this space i guess in a way yeah i mean it's not like some like like a like a super shady like like a <laughs> another like, psyop <laughs> it's not a super shady group chat that's like a spiritual like yeah. but basically we're just like a group chat with a bunch of the biggest pages like biggest political pages on instagram and they always just share information they also say like for example they said merry christmas and happy new year like recently which you know it's like <laughs> this nice community it, it feels nice it feels it's it's hard when it gets pretty wholesome in a way if I can use that term, like obviously not not in a degrading like cute way, but like just generally it's wholesome seeing like creators come together. But yeah, I got added to that group chat by one of like one of my friends of mine, like one of friends I developed through Modern Insurgent. It's nice because everybody greeted me and it was like, oh, like we saw your content. It's like really cool. Like keep it up and stuff like that. And occasionally when I need advice, I ask them as well because they have the experience, obviously. And a lot of them are actual like conflict reporters. So sometimes when I ask them, like, is it safe to talk about what would you guys do in this situation? Stuff like that. They respond really fast and they give me like guidance. So although it wasn't necessarily like, like validation, it did help me validate in a way the reliability of my page. The final part of your mental health journey you want to discuss, mate, is something called, or you called, externalization, which yeah. from speaking to you off air, seems like a heightened self-awareness and perception of your role in the universe that helps you stay calm in difficult situations. I imagine it probably helped you in Vienna. So just unpack this for me for the listeners and how it's manifested in you from what sounds like an early age. Yeah, for sure. So I guess... Like, it's kind of like stoicism, but in a way also understanding what you're capable of. So instead of just like remaining stoic to what happens, you know, to you in the outside world, it's also being really confident in who you are. I think the best way I can describe it is like through this quote, I don't remember who said it or if anybody said it, maybe it was made up, but it's like the quote is, life is a game, play it. Obviously, like we shouldn't treat life like a game, but the idea is what I've been seeing life as since I'm a kid is almost as if I'm I'm a character in a video game. And obviously, I want all the levels to be maxed out. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's like when I'm playing a video game, I want my character to be. You want the hundred percent, yeah. It's exactly. like yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I've always been confused as to why people don't want to do that in real life as well. Obviously, you want to be the best in like every domain, but not in like an arrogant, like you know, like competitive way where like you want to be mm. the best at everything. But in a way that's like positive for you, especially in terms of mental health. When you get to that stage where you're so confident in your abilities that you genuinely believe you have what it takes to be the best, that's like ideal. And I think externalization, sorry, is like part of it. I think that's the term I used. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's sort of like stoicism, but essentially not letting things like really affect who you are. I've, so many times people say like, for example, let's say hypothetically, you give a presentation and somebody says it was really bad, but like you think it was good. So why does it matter? You know, obviously take feedback from others. That's always important. But when you take like a lot of, there's things that can be destructive to try and ignore them and stay focused on that vision that you have of yourself. I think that's really important. And so, yeah, that's why I was talking about how it helped me personally as well, whether it's in academia or also in like the big debates I've done. So I went to Harvard last year and I'm going again in March for like these huge debates. And they're really challenging. Like you sleep like two hours a night and you have to debate on like a really complex political topic for four days straight. And the thing is, a lot of people try to backstab you. There's a lot of like strategies going on. Of course. And 
the only way you can keep going is if you're very externalized about it. Like mm. you, you stay focused, you know what you have to do, you know who you are, stuff like that. There's a lot of positives what you've just said, but there's also a story you tell me off air that perhaps is a downside to this attitude when you had appendicitis when you were younger yeah. and you didn't want to go to the hospital <laughs> until you basically couldn't move your legs. So is that a potential downside where it sounds less like healthy anti-fragility and more like an unhealthy stoicism or was that just your personality that you thought oh, I'm just fine I'm just going to leave it until it gets very bad you, you call me out on that honestly yeah. but <laughs> it's it's well okay so just some context I guess it's like I had a very big stomach pain the whole day and I thought okay well it's nothing it's just like a regular stomach pain I'll just go to the loo and clear it up but it, I couldn't and it's like my, my stomach was in big pain the whole day I still went to the gym I played football I went to school and I got home and it was like really bad but I just ignored it I guess it was sort of my personality but it was also just because of that externalization mm. this sounds like I'm a psychopath but basically like if you have pain like you can just recognize that it's like your body telling you something's wrong so usually these things wrong are like very like common things like a headache or a knee ache stuff like that it's not like something wrong on a huge proportion so I, I i can choose to ignore those type of pains so i thought it was going to be the same thing but obviously it wasn't it was appendicitis and i knew i had to go to the hospital when i could like barely move so yeah so there's i guess a healthy a way... balance i'm sure there's a healthy balance I'm yeah sure, for between, sure, for sure. Yeah. there's a healthy balance but it can be destructive in that sense in the sense that you forget as well that sometimes there's things you can't control because I guess sort of externalization is realizing that obviously there's some things that you can't control, but most of it lies in your hands. Like, for example, the main question I usually refer to is, you know, when people say, like, if you had to trust somebody with your life, who would it be? And sometimes people don't say themselves, which I find like really like, like a shame. Some, sometimes people say, oh, like my friend or like my brother. It depends on the situation, to be honest with me. <laughs> yeah, it, for sure. It depends on the situation. But most of the time I would always you know, say me, I'm like, I'm in control of my life. I want to be in complete control of who I am. So I also have control over like a life or death situation. But there's some things that obviously you can't control at all, like that appendicitis in the case where when you rely on that mindset, it's actually destructive because, well, then you've just doomed yourself, basically. <laughs> Explain your perception of how you fit into the universe. So would you say that you're minimizing or contextualizing your place in it in order to maximize your potential positive impact on it that's a bit of a stupid question but just no no i think it makes indulge sense. me think, for a bit <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i think actually like well this is like <laughs> philosophy 101 but basically yeah. i feel like that's why i hate it because i hated philosophy when i was in school <laughs> i dropped it straight away after a year <laughs> i actually liked it so so get ready oh. get ready for some i like the ethics style I, I hated learning about emmanuel kant and bloody aristotle and yeah oh god so yeah fair enough me. No, but I think I think the contextualization comes from the minimalization for me. So realizing that, okay, first of all, this doesn't have much to do with politics, by the way, but just basically like our relevance and like the universe is so small, we're the only form of life that we know about. And people often think like, oh, wow, like somebody sent me this mean message. It's like, who cares? Like, look at where we are. We're on a flying rock through space, through literal nothing. Like the definition of zero, we're flying through it. And it's like realizing that you're so small is a benefit because it helps you contextualize things. And often, like, I'm not sure if I'm a nihilist, but people often criticize nihilism for like, oh, people don't care. They don't see any benefit in life. But I think that recognizing how irrelevant human life is makes you want to live it very thoroughly. Like, people often assume like, oh, nihilists, like, they think nothing happens after death. They think like nothing has any purpose, that we're yeah. all going to die. They associate so with pessimism, don't they? Or exactly. cynicism. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. Whereas I guess in the best way to describe it would be like optimistic nihilism recognizing that because we're so irrelevant that's actually a gift it's like okay well that means i have a hundred years or so to do whatever i like and then it's over 
So like, why would I just sit there, keep playing, like or watching Netflix? Like, I'm not criticizing. This, this sounds like Andrew Tate, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's stay away from that. He just got owned by Greta Thunberg on Twitter. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It's not in order to like criticize people who want to procrastinate. Like sometimes I do it too, but it's more in a way of like sparking up a desire to do something great. It's like the idea that we're so small and so irrelevant that that's why you want to do something great. We have this gift of being irrelevant. We have this gift of being the only life form that we know of. So why would we waste it just doing nothing? Like, let's find our passions and let's let's get them done with. So I guess in a way, to go back to your question, that's why my contextualization comes from like minimalization. Finding that my reason to live actually comes from why there isn't a real reason to live. Like everything lies in my hands and my desire to do whatever I like. Has that mindset helped you with Modern Insurgent? For example, I imagine you have to watch some pretty gory or pretty difficult content. For sure, yeah. So in a way, it's helped me obviously watching that type of content, getting research that some people are too like lighthearted, or I think that's the word, mm-hmm. to watch. And I don't watch it in like the edgy sense where I'm like, oh, I can watch like really gore stuff. Like I don't actively look for gore stuff. But when I do see it, I'm not like very like, traumatized by it, if that makes sense. So yeah, in that way, yeah. But also I feel like it helped me with the modern insurgent because I was never scared of failure. Like in basically nothing I do, I'm very scared of failure. Because if I fail, so what? Then I'll just try something else. The only way you know if something succeeds whether that's professional or even like formal, like if, if you want to go ask out a girl, you're not going to know if it's going to succeed if you never attempt it. So you have to just try things. So with the modern insertion, I was like, so what? If it's like a page that only gets like 50 followers, like whatever, then I'll just stop or keep going if I find it interesting. But it was worth taking that initiative. So I think, yeah, it's definitely helped in, with the modern insertion for sure. When you do watch that content, obviously you've got a good way of processing it. I'm incredibly squeamish, so I can't watch anything like that, to be honest. I, to, to a certain degree, I can, but a lot of very detailed stuff like I'll normally just just stay away from. However, has it ever perhaps impacted on your emotional regulation? Can it numb emotional expressiveness when you're desensitized to so much horrific stuff? For sure, yeah. And there's many situations where I'm actually more scared of my reaction than the actual content. <laughs> so for example, like really, like sometimes I would be watching like very like tough documentaries or stuff with friends and then everybody's like oh no this is really like this is really hard to watch and i'm just there sitting and i'm like okay i'm gonna pretend it's hard to watch but it's not that hard to watch for me you know (laughs) and like i said obviously this makes it sound like i'm like edgy and trying to like look at like obviously like Mm. have like the highest tolerance possible but it's really not the goal like i don't actively go looking for that content i don't want to make people think i'm like oh yeah i'm so much better than you because i can watch that and you can't but it's just the way I process things. Like, I think the best way for me as well to externalize is realize that, like, for example, if it's a video, right? The video's already been filmed. Like, the thing has happened. So whether I look away or I don't look away, the result of the video is the same. So in a way, that's made me realize, like, it's the same with football games. Like, okay, I stress a lot for football, actually. But it's like, it's the same thing. It's like the game will happen. I can't really do much. So at the end of the day, I'm confident just, like, watching what happens. Yeah, taking emotion out of football is, a, is definitely hard, mate. I can't lie. Yeah, yeah. Football, football <laughs> is one of the only things, man let's reflect on your mental health journey now mate so a what has it taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the anton who had appendicitis and was delaying going to the hospital the anton who was in his flat in vienna with a terrorist outside with an ak-47 or the anton who had just lost some of his perhaps not closest friends but friends he thought were close after starting the modern insurgent what would you say to him knowing what you do now well, I guess I, w- I would honestly just say don't change anything. I think there's definitely some lessons I've learned that I wish I knew before. But I think if I knew them before, maybe things wouldn't have turned out the same. 
Like it's sort of like this butterfly effect mm. thing. But I feel like if, for example, I intervene and I told myself like, oh, try not to do too much risky stuff or don't post about this because you'll lose a friend or two. It's like, honestly, like I'm very happy with it, the way things have went, how things have turned out. Um, and although obviously there's some downsides to it, like the ones you just mentioned, I think they're part of who I am today. And so like, I don't really want to try and like modify that or all the mistakes have a, have a sort of, you know, reason to be mistakes. But I guess if there was one piece of advice, perhaps it would be to try and, I'm not really sure. I guess it would try more risky things, especially with the modern insurgent. Like, honestly, it's a shame because that mostly has to do with like the community guidelines on Instagram, stuff like that. But really try and like do more risky things. At the very start, I would always post about things that people knew sometimes. I'd say they were underreported, but they weren't necessarily that underreported. And if I tried out more risky things, like more niche things, really going on a tantrum and just like posting like random stuff, I feel like that could have been pretty good. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Anton, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? I would say extremely healthy. I, I will elaborate if you want. By all means, if you want to. Okay, That's yeah, a pretty sure. good answer. I'm saying all, like very healthy because I've understood that my mental health is almost entirely dependent on the way I react to things. So now that I have control over my reactions through like what I talked about earlier, like externalization, stuff like that, I know that no matter what challenges I see in front of myself, like I'll always deal with it. And I have dealt with all my challenges so far. So that's why I think I'm, I'm in a pretty good state. Excellent. That's probably one of the best answers I've had on this podcast from a healthy <laughs> perspective anyway. What mental health issues or conditions, if any, do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life? This kind of requires me to leave that whole externalization thing, but <laughs> reflecting on it, maybe an over-expectation of what I'm destined to do. So like I have like this obsession with everything being perfect, with excellence. Like I have this obsession with excellence. I want to do great things. And I think it's sometimes that puts like pretty burdening expectations on myself. So you put too much pressure on yourself to achieve things yeah. too quickly, maybe. For sure. For, yeah. Well, not just too quickly, but also do things that are like, like for example, like my age, I'm already like expecting a lot from myself. Mm. which is good in terms of my personal like professional journey and stuff but sometimes it's burdening because like I, I lose sleep like I don't sleep much because I'm too busy because I have too many commitments or too too many things mm. to do what age were you mate when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mental health I think it was probably like 16 okay was it a eureka moment or was it gradual I think it was mostly gradual yeah for mm-hmm. sure I think it was a build-up of all of my friend groups, stuff like that, but not just my friends, but also just the buildup of who I was. I started going to the gym and stuff, and I especially like thanks to the gym because the gym helps a lot mentally for sure. Like it helps you be in a more positive state of mind for sure. And I realized that like, okay, well, I'm seeing progress at the gym. So like I can see that what I do and how much hard work I put into things, like they materialize. So I might as well put that work into myself, like, you know, try and develop. And so that's what I've done. And so, yeah, probably Sick, 16 man. years old. Yeah, I just saw a stupid article in Time magazine saying like why exercises the root of white supremacy or some fucking bollocks. So I'm just, I think I, I, <laughs> sounds, I closed sounds, Twitter this morning when I saw sounds that. Sounds American. Like, yeah, it's very, very American. Can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other, did it feel like something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? Well, actually, I suppose you're probably the first person in my life I've like oh, given sick. That, okay. that much of an analysis to. Like, I don't know. 
I guess that's why that's why I respect Vent so much. It's because it gives especially a voice to to boys and men because there is a stigma about it. Like, for example, me and my friends, like, never would we sit down and be like, "Hey, boys, like, can I talk about my mental health?" Like, that's something that's like very frowned upon. Yeah, so you normally sure, need a couple beers for it. Even my mates aren't like that, mate, and they've come on the podcast. So. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. I've I've seen a lot of my like, especially when they're drunk. Like, I've seen a lot of my friends attempt very deep talks. Yes. But the thing is, they emotional get so lubricant. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah but yeah. the problem is, <laughs> they get so drunk to the point they can't talk about it so although the, <laughs> although the willingness is there like the actual yeah. the actual process isn't it so yeah i've talked about some things with my friends but mm. never very like deep deep yeah i think with guys a lot of the time our social interactions and this is a double-edged sword our social interactions are almost like a distraction from mental health like a positive distraction so we talk about football or we talk about whatever interests we like and it's a distraction from our problems but then sometimes that can go too far where we never talk about our problems if we want to. So I think it's about finding an activity or something that takes the weight off that conversation. So whether it's, you know, we go into the pub or whether you're going to watch the football and someone just casually mentions like, how are you doing? Like what's happening with this situation you've got going on? It almost relieves that pressure and it makes it something quite easy to do rather than, oh my God, we're going to have a sit down and we're going to talk about this and it's going to be an intervention with someone. Do you know what For I mean? Sure. So, yeah. For sure, yeah. And I think I think what you said about like the football and stuff, it, it's really important. Like it's these sort of things that first of all develop our connections with our friends, our mates. It's like also if even if they don't support the same club, it's that banter that we have in between. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, of course. But the reason as to why we love like hanging out with our friends, stuff like that, is because it's sort of an escape from everything mm. else um, mm. in its way. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, mate? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I don't think I figured all of them out yet because I haven't been in like very dangerous situations. And mm-hmm. I feel like a dangerous situation was probably like, because although I do back up and I, I, I do back up like the potential that I have with my externalization, I do feel like maybe if I'm in a very dangerous situation, it will crack eventually. I'm not sure about that just yet, but also like this sounds childish, but it's, it's true. Like genuinely football, it has like really harmed my mental health sometimes. <laughs> not in a way that's like, you know, just saying, oh, like, I care about football. But especially, it's like, so I'm, I'm a PSG Ultra. Like, I, I, I've i been watching. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, PSG yeah. Ultra. That's, wow, okay. No, yeah. like, like, and so I guess that's the only thing that really makes me stress, like, an, a ridiculous amount. And many you ain't times, got too much to be stressed about as a PSG fan. Come no, on. No, I mean, after after, like, all the comebacks and stuff that we've suffered, like, sometimes. Oh, like, I, remember, I see. Like, yeah, those ones in Champions League. Yeah, yeah. That that's, hurts, that's, man. That's, that's pain. That's pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> especially, especially when you're in the stadium for them, like, with the away fans, like, Oof. you go all the way. And you're just sitting there and it's like, man, yeah. like, I guess so in a way, like football has definitely been. But, you know, I'm a fan of a team you've probably not heard of called Huddersfield Town because my dad. No, I and, have heard uh, of it. Well, thank you very much. Not many people have, even in England. And it does <laughs> teach you about how to take an L in life. Yeah, yeah <laughs> A yeah. lot. It humbles, it hum- football humbles people for sure. Yeah. What positive tools and methods do you use, mate, in your own life to improve your mental health? Obviously, you mentioned the gym, but what others, which ones have you found that have worked for you? And maybe which ones that you've also tried but haven't? Well, I've tried this one and it does help, but I don't do it anymore. I don't, I'm not sure why. I should probably restart, but it's meditation. I think it helps a lot. What else? I think sometimes reading as well. Like mm-hmm. reading helps a lot. Because I feel like, and I mean like reading with like books, I found that makes a huge difference. So I've tried reading digitally and stuff, but there's always distractions. And just the fact, even if you're reading something on your phone or something, just the fact that you're on your phone programs you to like, not only be distracted, but also recognize that it's a very short attention span. So you'll be reading and then you'll end up like skimming over it because you can just swipe down. Whereas a book, you can't really do that. A book, you have to like, so I think reading does help a lot with that. And so, yeah, I think reading and meditation are the big two. 
Speaking of books, what is the best one that you've read, or as I call it, mental health bible for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. It can be fiction. And if you can't think of a book, a play, podcast, or something else entirely. So there is actually a book called Factfulness. I'm pretty sure it's famous. Now, let me, let me, let me just type up the author quickly. But it's basically, oh yeah, there we go. It's, it's by Hans Rosling, which was this famous, like, I guess I can call him a statistician in a way. Like he deals with statistics, but he developed like this huge platform that I like uh, like using a lot called Gapminder. Like the whole purpose is to have easily accessible data about basically every, anything in the world, and it gives you these amazing visualizations, these bubbles, these like different graphic tools that help you visualize like patterns or like trends over time. It, it's statistics, so it has to do with like GDP, but also poverty and stuff like that. But the book basically talk like factfulness the book basically talks about the world is actually doing a lot better than we think and actually it has a lot to do with the media like what you know, something i'm very interested in the fact that every time we see the media it's always about a tragedy always about something wrong happening mm. and so we get this intention we get this bias that things aren't actually going very well but if you look at statistics if you look at the cold like hard facts from over the past 100 years you see that actually we've improved incredibly on so many different things like whether it has to do with levels of poverty levels of hunger levels of discrimination against certain minorities against women stuff like that we've actually been improving a lot so although there's still a lot of you know things to do for sure like that book has helped me a lot not only with mental health i think it's a good read for everyone listening it's a reality check and as a final question mate this is a broad one so you can answer it however way you want what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health, if most importantly, they want to do it. So this is a bit controversial, but I've talked about it like a lot. And I think it's pretty valid. Like obviously toxic masculinity is not good. In many I don't ways. use that phrase on this podcast anymore. I used to, I don't think it's a helpful phrase anymore. Exactly. It's not yeah. that helpful, but I think I must admit there are some components of toxic masculinity that I think we shouldn't completely ignore. And not in the sense of like, oh, we have like, you know, like men have to do this and that. But I think there are some like responsibilities that we need to assume and they'll help us actually talking about our feelings. So, for example, I, I do believe that men do have a responsibility to be charismatic, to want to do better in life always, you know, to try and seek self-improvement. I think that should be yes. the case for everyone. The Jordan Peterson think, argument. Yeah, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think for sure, like people often discredit toxic masculinity as a whole. And it's good that we're fighting against it because it does put like unfair expectations on men. But mm. there are some components that we shouldn't ignore as a whole because part of what makes us as men like mentally healthy is to be strong not only physically but also mentally you know have mm. this peace within ourselves and we can only get that if we have certain expectations about ourselves and i feel like one of the main reasons as to why so many men need to talk about things today is because we're sort of discrediting their role and their importance sort of by always saying like oh like you guys never talk about things you're always you know you keep things to yourself you have all these expectations you're not actually meant to be like that strong in your life but i feel like we're biologically healthy by being strong by being confident within ourselves so i think that by completely discrediting toxic masculinity we're actually already harming the way we can talk about mental health i would sense. describe it more as toxic behaviors rather than intrinsic to our masculinity for sure that's i yeah. think that's the best way yeah because part of masculinity is like having a responsibility within ourselves because then if you say there's toxic masculinity then you would argue that there's toxic femininity and that's the slope that I try to avoid. So I would For probably sure. say there's toxic behaviors in both sexes and we need to challenge each other and we need to challenge ourselves on how we tackle them. So for example, with men, we need to challenge each other when it comes to bad behaviors towards women or For something sure. like that. And, and when you said you made a really good point about people asking why don't men talk, 
I think for the men that will find talking helpful, we need to encourage them. I take the attitude of not every man will find talking helpful. Some men will actually find it unhelpful to them, but they might find seeing other men talk about it helpful to them. For sure. So the ones that do find it helpful need to kind of be not the role models, but to, to show the way for the ones who can't or won't find it helpful. And we also need to destigmatize the issues that men do want to talk about. So for example, if a man is being domestically abused and they would find it helpful to talk about it, or I would always say, please know that you're not alone. There are loads of men who've been domestically abused. If you find talking helpful, I'm there for you and, and we will help you. But if they come out about it and then they get criticized, then they'll say, well, you just told me to talk about it and you just said that it's okay for men to talk, but there's an asterisk. Yep. So yeah. For sure. No, no, Any yeah, final absolutely. thoughts, mate? Honestly, nothing else except like, obviously, thank you so much for inviting me on this. Like it, it's a big opportunity. And like I said, I didn't know about Vent before, so I was really, really happy to get that email. So yeah. Amazing, mate. Anton, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been one of my favorite podcasts I've done this year. You are an incredibly mature guy for your age. I see a lot of potential in you. I'll be happy to support you in connecting you with anyone in my contact so book much. because the work that you're doing is amazing and you have a very clear idea of what you want to do. I think sometimes give yourself a little bit of a break because you are doing a lot and I don't want to put too much expectation on yourself and you shouldn't do either because what you're doing already is amazing. So thank you for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you to Anton from The Modern Insurgent for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with him. I'll put a link to where you can follow Anton as well as The Modern Insurgent on social media in the show notes. If you've liked what you've heard, remember, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you've been generous, write us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so by going to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. They are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash ventshelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>